Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, living the eternal way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join the discussion, email us at yogahour at unity.fm. Now, here's your host, Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, our time to open our hearts and our minds to the infinite. I'm Ellen Grace O'Brien, and I'll be sharing with you today some insights and practices from the spiritual tradition of yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization. Yoga is a familiar Sanskrit word today. Many understand it to mean oneness, union, or unity. Um, Some are aware of it as a form of exercise, but here we're, we're talking about its deepest meaning to bring our attention and awareness to rest in our essential spiritual nature, to be restored to our original wholeness. So yoga is abiding in the conscious awareness of our true self. It is self-realization. And it's not just knowing this, of course, but realizing is to be able to live in harmony with that truth of our being. Uh, Today's topic will be of great interest to those practicing meditation or those considering it. Meditation, science, and your brain insights from neuroscience that can change your life. And I'm joined today by visionary and world-renowned neuroscientist Richard Davidson. And we're going to be taking a fascinating uh, look at the mind, the brain, and our emotional nature that has the potential to change the way we see ourselves and inspire us to make positive changes. Richard Davidson um, is professor of psychology and psychiatry at University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the director of the Wiseman Laboratory for Brain Imaging and Behavior at the Laboratory for Effective Neuroscience. He's also founder and chair of the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds and a member of the Mind and Life Institute's Board of Directors. 
He's recipient of numerous awards for his research. In 2006, he was awarded the first Monty Baumick Award by UCLA for advancing the understanding of the brain and conscious mind in healing and was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. He's the author, uh, co-author with Sharon Bakley of the recently released book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain, How Its Unique Patterns Affect the Way You Think, Feel, and Live, and How You Can Change Them. You can find out more about Dr. Davidson and his work and the book at richardjdavidson.com. Welcome, Dr. Davidson. I'm delighted you could join us today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And before we begin our conversation, let's just take a moment for a centering meditation. Let us become aware in this moment of our breath. Just noticing the breathing. And as you breathe in, feel that you are pulling your attention within, expanding your awareness. And as you breathe out, feel that you're letting go of all distraction. And let's open our hearts and our minds to divine omnipresence, one reality called by many names. It is the support and the substance of all that is. So right where we are right now, we can recognize this divine essence being present as you, as me, as everyone, as everything. As we move our awareness from the periphery, being involved in sensory stimulation, just draw it within into the depths of our being, letting our breath help us do that. We can come to consciously rest in that essential nature. So without trying to change anything, just noticing, breathing in, breathing out. Cool air entering your nostrils, warm air flowing out. We begin to witness thoughts, perhaps sensations arising and passing away. And as we become aware of our essential nature, the witness consciousness beyond words and thoughts, beyond all change and phenomena, we experience a peace that is innate to our being. So let's invite this peace now to pervade the mental field, our emotional nature, our physical body. And remember to touch this peace throughout the day, to abide in it, 
to let it overflow as blessing for all beings everywhere. Richie, you write in the introduction to your book that the goal of your work has been to show through research um, that emotions, far from being the neurological fluff that mainstream science long believed them to be, are central to the functions of the brain and to the life of the mind. Uh, I appreciated so much the stories of your early attempts to interest people in this study and your own uh, fledgling research attempts early on before uh, the technologies that are available uh, today, you know, were uh, accessible to you. The Emotional Life of Your Brain is a really enjoyable book to read and it makes this uh, wisdom of neuroscience uh, accessible to the layperson. So how would you, let's begin with how, how you would describe the shift that has taken place in recent years regarding scientific understanding of the brain and emotion? Well, uh, there has been a, uh, a tremendous interest and uh, appreciation of this area uh, uh, because there are now new methods that enable us to peer into the human brain non-invasively in ways that were simply unavailable when I first started. And these new methods have uh, been critical in helping to establish uh, the uh, consistent patterns of brain function and structure which are um, critical for emotion uh, and also helped us to appreciate the fact that Uh, Thought and emotion are intimately interwoven in the human brain. Uh, There was once a time when uh, scientists believed that emotion was relegated only to uh, areas below the cortex uh, in the, quote, more primitive parts of our brain. And we now know that that's just simply not true, that there are um, circuits in the highest most evolutionary recent parts of the brain that are very important uh, for emotion and its regulation. And uh, uh, even a casual uh, introspection would, I think, reveal that emotions play an important role um, uh, in so many different uh, components of life and uh, also in um, uh, the most complex form of choice and reasoning. Uh, the way we make decisions is, uh, particularly complex decisions, is something that is very strongly influenced by our emotions. So, for example, mm-hmm. if we are um, in the throes of deciding who our life partner will be, that's not a decision that's made on the basis of a cold cognitive calculus, but rather it's a decision that's made on the basis of consulting one's emotions. Uh, and so um, these are some of the elements which have come together to uh, help establish this as a vibrant area of scientific research. You know, we're so grateful that you're doing this work and and shining a light on it. You know, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, you know, the timing and the 
the the need for healing, you know, in our lives and in our world, and um, how this work really speaks to you know the balance. It's a classical balance of ma- you know what we think of as masculine and feminine, you know, uh, thinking and feeling, um, and and to raise up this function of feeling. You know, as you said, it had been relegated to the uh, quote unquote lower part of the brain. And, um, you know, that's where uh, a lot of emphasis on things that have been associated with the feminine, you know, have been, right? And so um, this, is, this is wonderful to, to give this model of, of wholeness and to have it be something um, that is, is tangible for people. I mean, that's really what your work has done. And, and your work, uh, I see, really bridges science and spirituality, you know, giving us a clearer understanding of the physiology of emotion. And uh, it also offers us some very practical tools for doing the work that spiritual traditions uh, recommend. Um, y- you know, we need this deeper understanding. I, I, you know, I still think about, you know, when you read the Dhammapada, for instance, in, in Thomas Byram's uh, translation, one of the verses from the Buddha is, never be angry, right? Mm-hmm. And then you read Bhagavad Gita, and uh, Lord Krishna is counseling Arjuna, you know, do not grieve. <laughs> and then on the positive side of it, you know, we have so much uh, spiritual emphasis on, you know, developing compassion, developing peace and patience. And, and we have, you know, many tools in our, in our spiritual um, uh, uh, traditions for doing this. But being able now to document actually how we do this is, is fabulous. So you've introduced in this book what you call emotional style, uh, distinguishing it from emotional states and moods and traits. So tell us about that. Well, the idea of emotional style is simply uh, 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 a concept that's meant to refer to consistent ways of emotional responding uh, and uh, emotion regulation and the styles that I describe, I describe six styles, and they come directly from neuroscientific research. Um, some of them may be um, ones that uh, people think about when they think about emotional styles, but some of them are probably uh, much less obvious. Uh, so one of the emotional styles, for example, that we discuss is called resilience, and resilience refers to how quickly or slowly a person recovers from adversity. Some people, uh, in response to the stresses and strains of everyday life, uh, are able to bounce back to baseline extremely quickly, and uh, uh, they're kind of unflappable, uh, and others are set off and uh, spiral into a, um, uh, a persistent uh, negative response uh, and find it difficult to shake it off and, and come back to baseline. And we, we know something about the neural circuits in the brain that um, are responsible for that style. And, and I should say that each of us have all six of these emotional styles. We just differ in where along each of these six dimensions we fall. And uh, one of the important components of the book is to describe how we can change these styles if we so choose, if they're not working for us. The fact that uh, each of these styles is rooted in a specific um, brain circuit also means that um, based on our 
understanding of neuroplasticity, the idea that the brain can change in response to experience and to training, we know that these circuits are malleable, at least to some extent, and uh, we can take more responsibility for the shaping of these circuits through um, uh, our own efforts, through intentional practice. Uh, and, um, uh, and so uh, many of the contemplative practices from the spiritual t- traditions to which you referred earlier uh, are really ideally suited for transforming uh, different aspects of our emotional styles and uh, correspondingly the underlying brain circuits that mediate them. Mm, and it's beautiful the way that you have given us now, you know, these tools to tie that directly and to see, you know, how change can even be uh, measured. And um, let's let's just briefly uh, state the, the whole six styles. You mentioned uh, resilience, taking a look at how slowly or quickly we, we recover from adversity. And, um, and then outlook is another one, you know, how long we're able to sustain um, positive emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, say so a little that's, bit about that one. That's the second one, and it's in many ways it's the flip side of resilience. Uh, and um, uh, what this refers to is uh, the extent to which a person's positive emotion persists. So imagine that you have a um, a very loving interaction with a friend or a, um, a, a close um, a person close to you. Uh, uh, in the morning, uh, does that color most of your day and uh, provide a kind of positive halo, uh, or are you do you experience that positive emotion in a very fleeting way and very rapidly come back to your baseline? Uh, mm-hmm. We know, for example, that individuals with depression uh, do experience a transient blip in their positive emotion, but they're unable to have that positive emotion be sustained. And it turns out that the neural circuits that are important for that also show a very fleeting response. They do show uh, a transient um, um, peak of activation, but uh, they, that activation is unable to be sustained over time. And this is something that we found in our own research. And I think um, there would probably be others like me who have the experience of, of reading your book. And as a, you know, I've been meditating for 30 years, and so I recognize um, some of the ways that I have experienced changes in these areas. Um, you know, through meditation and spiritual practice, you know, outlook, um, for example, uh, I, I, you know, that's, it's measurable to me, you know, in my own way, you know, prior to um, meditation, I, I, I tended to have, you know, more of a gloomy outlook <laughs> life, you know, and like you, you described, you know, I would have a positive experience, but what was more in the background was, you know, what was wrong, um, you know, a more critical um, state of mind. But, you know, I have found um, through the years that, you know, I actually have become more resilient and, you know, my outlook has also changed. Um, We're going to go to the break now, but when we get back, let's take a look at the other four uh, emotional styles. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with guest Richard Davidson, co-author of the book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain, How Its Unique Patterns Affect the Way 
you think, feel, and live, and how you can change them. His website is richardjdavidson.com. We'll be right back with you. When listeners like you contribute to the Unity Online Radio Network, you're making a positive difference in your life and the lives of other spiritual seekers. To contribute, visit www.unity.fm and make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly contributions. Thank you for your support. Affirm the good that flows within you and stretch to reach your divine potential with daily inspirational messages from Daily Word. The path to God is not long or difficult or complex. Wherever I am, whatever I am doing, I pause and bring awareness to the one spirit that is within me. I open my mind to the thought of one creative energy enlivening me in the world. I open my heart to the one love that is the essence of life. This love, God's love, is within us all. Spirit needs no books or rituals, wealth or architecture to reveal itself. It is as intimate as a touch and as vast as the infinity of space. I am at peace in the simple knowing that wherever I am, God is. Daily Word magazine is now available in a digital format. A one-year subscription to Daily Word Digital Magazine with audio is only $9.95. That's less than three cents a day to start your day right, centered and connected to the truth within you. To learn how you can subscribe to this online interactive magazine, go to www.dailyword.com. turning five this year and we're throwing the biggest bash of all a cruise to the caribbean november 10 through 17 2012 we'll celebrate in style aboard holland america lines eurodam with sunshine fine dining and a selection of island excursions at beautiful ports of call in the eastern caribbean plus feed your spirit with music message and meditation Your favorite hosts will be there, and we hope you will join us too as we celebrate five years of spiritual programming at Unity Online Radio. For more information, visit www.unity.fm forward slash cruise. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Ellen Grace O'Brien, and I'm joined today by Richard Davidson, neuroscientist who has long been on the leading edge of research that has to do with emotion and the brain and the power of the mind to change the brain. Uh, We've been talking about um, the emotional life of the brain um, from his new book and looking at the emotional styles um, that he has named that have to do with uh, that being directly connected connected to brain function, 
and there are six of them. In the first segment, we talked about resilience, and the second one being outlook. And uh, the third on the list is social intuition, um, how we pick up clues from, from those around us. So tell us a little bit more about that one. So social intuition, uh, as you say, refers to how sensitive or accurate a person is in picking up on nonverbal cues of emotion in others, cues such as facial expression, tone of voice, body posture. Some people are really intuitive people, which means that they're able to uh, accurately detect these signals in others and make inferences, uh, accurate inferences, about their emotional state based on these cues. And other people are really... um, kind of uh, opaque to these cues. Uh, At the extreme, uh, we have studied individuals on the autism spectrum, and individuals on the autism spectrum often have a great deal of difficulty in picking up on these nonverbal cues related to emotion. Uh, Each of us, again, uh, has this style of social intuition. We vary um, along that dimension uh, with respect to how accurate or inaccurate we may be in picking up on those cues. And, um, and then next on the list, you have self-awareness, um, which seems I, then, then related to our own, our own cues in a sense. Exactly. So self-awareness refers to how accurate we are in picking up on our own internal bodily cues that provide information to, uh, to each of us about our own emotions. Uh, some people are really sensitive to these bodily cues. They can accurately pick up on uh, patterns of muscle tension or changes in their autonomic nervous system like their heart rate, uh, and others are much less sensitive to what's going on inside. Um, And uh, for those people, uh, others uh, may be more accurate in detecting their, their own emotional state than they are themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is another uh, very important dimension of emotional style. And this is actually a good place for me to underscore an important point, which is that it's not necessarily always the case that it's best to be really accurate in, um, and really sensitive in picking up on these cues. Um, people who are super sensitive to their internal bodily cues um, are individuals who may be prone to certain kinds of disorders like panic disorder. Um, Individuals with panic disorder are hypersensitive to their own internal cues and they they often catastrophize um, Mm -hmm. in relation to them. So they will uh, interpret a change in heart rate um, as if it were catastrophic and indicative of a heart attack. And so, uh, uh, what, and also what's best for one person may not necessarily be best for all people. So uh, it's important that each of us have uh, uh, some understanding of where we each fall on each of these six dimensions. And uh, if, uh, if one of those dimensions is not quite right for, for a person, then he or she um, can do... Uh, Um, various kinds of practices uh, or uh, interventions that might help to change uh, that particular emotional style. 
And I and it and it seems that you know what you've offered here in this model is just to help us understand that you know the we all have a unique mix of um, these styles that then give rise to what we would think of as temperament or or personality, um, but that we we do have the ability um, to to work with these uh, styles in in ways that can enhance our experience of life. As you were talking about this uh, self awareness, I, I was thinking about the the research and work of um, Eugene Gendlin. You know who mm-hmm. developed the the tool of focusing um, to help people in the th- uh, who were undergoing therapy. You know, and his his observation of you know what helped people be able to make positive uh, change in the therapeutic environment, and you know his his uh, discovery and then de- development of the model of helping people become more self aware, um, picking up cues you know internally, and um, that was that was really uh, very useful work. So yeah. I, I can see it. Yeah, it's see a, how, yes. yep. how people um, can can take these uh, areas that you're identifying and um, be able to make some real change. And then you have on your list next uh, the fifth one: sensitivity to context. Um, yeah, and that's one that um, probably is a little uh, unusual for most people. They don't really think about this in terms of emotional style, but it turns out that. What this style refers to is the extent to which we use uh, contextual information to modulate our emotional responses. So, for example, the way we talk to our spouse um, would presumably be very different than the way we talk to our boss. Uh, And so uh, those are two very different contexts. And uh, being able to differentiate between those contexts and modulate our emotional responses in a way that's appropriate to those contexts is something that is important for our emotional well-being. At the extreme, again, uh, it's instructive to see what a failure of context um, um, processing might confer. And uh, here, um, the best example is post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder is fundamentally a disorder of context. And what I mean by that is that uh, the kind, the way your body responds to a traumatic incident actually has um, adaptive uh, significance. There are reasons why we've been designed that way. Um, but uh, it's very maladaptive to show those responses in contexts which are safe. So um, uh, if you can just imagine a veteran returning back from a war zone uh, and uh, that veteran may be um, walking in his safe neighborhood in the United States and an ambulance goes by uh, and in response to the siren and the lights, he just freaks out and has a panic attack. Um, That uh, is an example of a failure to process context to be sensitive Mm -hmm. to context. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the context here is a safe context. Um, It's in a safe neighborhood, and um, uh, it's just an ambulance going by. But uh, the failure to to encode the context uh, is something that leads to uh, a highly maladaptive emotional response. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's a particular part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is 
extremely importantly involved in the processing of contextual information. And there's a lot of evidence to indicate that uh, the hippocampus has both structural and functional abnormalities in post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. In in the model of uh, yoga philosophy, you know, we we talk about uh, samskaras, you know, impressions uh, in mm-hmm. the mental field that can arise uh, in in a given context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're an impression of something that occurred in the past, and given uh, in, uh, the right environment, they will arise. And they may be appropriate to that environment or inappropriate. So, you know, you've described one, you know, at PTSD as, a, as an inappropriate response to the environment a person is in. And, and this occurs for people, of course, in more ordinary kinds of situations where, and I want to see if it's related to what you're talking about here is sensitivity to context. So if people have childhood trauma, for example, in their upbringing, um, they may encounter something in in their uh, relationship later in life. It may be a conversation with a boss or a spouse that reminds them, <laughs> right, of the of the experience that occurred uh, in in childhood that then causes them to feel the feelings that are not related to uh, the current situation. Mm-hmm. So so would that be uh, what you're speaking about here as sensitivity to context? It may well be. You know that kind of experience has not received enough serious scientific attention to uh, uh, know its underlying neural basis with certainty. But um, I would say that there is certainly some likelihood that it's sharing the same basic um, neural circuits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like it, it, it would. Um, and then last on, on the list, the sixth one is attention um, has to do with our focus. So tell us a little bit more about that one. Yeah, so attention is not normally thought of as a component or a constituent of emotional style, Yet uh, attention and emotion are very intimately linked uh, when we just reflect on the, um, the events and stimuli in our world which capture our attention. They, they are invariably emotional stimuli, stimuli with, or situations with emotional salience. Um, and uh, uh, people vary in many different parameters of attention, uh, one of the central ones, which is um, uh, critical to this style that, that we talk about in the book, is uh, a person's capacity to focus his or her attention. Uh, and this dimension ranges from being very focused to being very scattered. And um, uh, on the scattered end, uh, uh, different kinds of emotional cues would pull a person's attention so that it was just being um, pulled from one from one cue to another, from one little emotional episode to another. Uh, and uh, a more focused attentional style is one where uh, an individual can deploy his or her attention uh, and be able to maintain the focus um, irrespective of uh, distracting emotional stimuli uh, in the environment. Uh, and here, um, you know, we understand quite a bit about the neural basis of uh, this um, component of attention. And we also know that certain kinds of meditation practice uh, can be 
used to strengthen these circuits and uh, to improve one's focus of attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We because we're we're practicing. We're in a sense stimulating uh, that we call it our concentration muscle, right? Our our ability, you know, to stay focused in in yoga meditation. You know, we pick a single object of attention, and um, I would think that that would strengthen that ability. You know, it certainly yeah. certainly seems so. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, and, and I think it's important to understand, and, and you really do uh, stress that in your book, that this research, you know, um, gives us the ability to see how positive changes can be made, but you're really not presenting it as a, some kind of an ideal model, you know, in the sense that, okay, everybody has so many points in these six uh, areas, and, you know, we, we all should be moving in this direction. Um, you know, you, you're, you're looking at everybody has a unique mix. That's part of what makes us, you know, who we are. Um, but there are ways to make changes if we find that in any given area of these six areas that, um, you know, life is, is uh, painful or uncomfortable or, you know, a heightening this awareness might bring um, more functionality or more joy. So, um, you know, what, what do you see about what someone might want to consider whether, you know, they want to make changes uh, with these areas? Well, you're, you're underscoring something uh, that is quite important, uh uh, that uh, we do uh, elaborate on in the book, which is that there is no um, uh, ideal emotional style for all people. Uh, what is best for one person may not necessarily be best for another person, and it really depends upon their unique environment and, and all kinds of other things. And so each person needs to decide for her or himself uh, whether uh, their um, particular... Um, emotional styles are working for them or not, and uh, if they wish to make a change, the first um, constituent of change is to be aware of their emotional style, which is why um, we present these questionnaires in the book which allow people to assess each of the six emotional styles for themselves and to determine where they fall on each of these six dimensions. And if um, they find that uh, one or more dimension is um, not where they optimally would like it to be, um, we present some suggestions for uh, altering the emotional style in one direction or the other direction. Um, Because, again, uh, it's not always the case that moving in one direction is necessarily the best direction for each person. It really depends upon uh, many other factors. Mm, and so a person might find that greater uh, sensitivity uh, is needed in a certain area and perhaps less, um, you know, as you've indicated already, if somebody is very uh, aware of bodily sensation to the degree that it um, causes them to feel panicked, um, that that person would need to regulate in the other direction. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what a what a wonderful look at um, how emotion uh, is is connected to our uh, brain function and the ability for us to then assess based on uh, some of the questions that you provide and look at ways then 
that um, we could make changes. Could you give us an example of, you know, one of the ways a, a person might make changes in any one of these areas? Well, um, one of the practices that I recommend uh, in the last chapter of the book, which turns out to be um, helpful for several emotional styles, is the simple practice of mindfulness meditation. Uh, You can um, practice uh, simply becoming aware of um, uh, your breathing, for example, uh, and just returning the mind to the breath, either the sensations in the abdomen or sensations uh, at the tip of the nostril uh, when we inhale and exhale, uh, and just becoming aware of this and returning the mind back to uh, uh, this focus when um, when the mind when, when a person notices that his or her mind has become distracted. Uh, can be very, very helpful in, um, uh, in, for example, the resilient emotional style, coming back to baseline more quickly following adversity. One of the ways mindfulness is defined is paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally. Mm-hmm. And the non-judgmental piece is very important because through this practice, we learn that um, these are just thoughts or emotions which may be arising that are distracting us, and uh, we don't need to um, pay any special attention to any one thought or emotion, and we just can observe uh, these phenomena arising and then falling away. And uh, through that kind of systematic practice, um, the distracting influence of thoughts and emotions um, is uh, less pronounced. They hijack us less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so through the pr- that process, um, when adversity occurs, um, we can simply observe whatever emotions and thoughts arise in response to that adversity, but not get swept up in it. And that allows us to return back to baseline more quickly. It's a beautiful description, and you know, as a meditator, I've certainly experienced that. And you know, I've described it as having a, a, a sense, a felt sense of kind of more internal spaciousness. Um, and we're going to take a break now, and when we get back from the break, we'll talk more specifically about meditation and Dr. Davidson's uh, fascinating research with meditation. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with guest Richard Davidson. Find out more about his work at Richard. RichardJDavidson.com. We'll be right back with you. Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity Online Radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit www.unity.fm and click on Mobile Listening. There is peace. There is quiet. Reverend Paulette's mantra is, It's all a prayer. Tune in every Tuesday as Unity Minister Paulette Pipe leads you in meditation and prayer on touching the stillness. Make no mistake, this is not nap time. 
with an energy that will captivate you. Touching the stillness will guide you in deep meditation, leaving you enlivened. Hear astounding meditations and learn more about different forms of meditation. Enrich your prayer life as Reverend Paulette, Senior Minister of Touching the Stillness Ministries, affirmatively prays with power and authority by taking live prayer requests from callers like you. Whether you have a prayer request for yourself or for a loved one or are ready for a deepened meditation experience, make sure you tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Central Time, where we'll be joining in consciousness with the unceasing prayer activity of the Silent Unity 24-7 Prayer Ministry at Unity Village. That's Touching the Stillness with Rev. Paulette Pipe every Tuesday right here on Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Letting go in the stillness. You're listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. If you have a question, please submit it via email at yoga hour at unity.fm and we will respond now back to the yoga hour welcome back to the yoga hour i'm ellen grace o'brien and i'm joined today by richard davidson neuroscientist who has long been on the leading edge of research uh, having to do with emotion and the brain the power of the mind to change the brain and in this segment, we're going to be taking a look at how meditation um, specifically can be uh, looked at and uh, used to change one's emotional style. Um, and before we get into that, um, I'd like to just hear from you, Richie, about your initial um, involvement in scientific research into meditation that was part of what I really enjoyed about your book was just the the sharing of the early days you know what it was like trying to get this up on the map of a scientific inquiry yeah those were somewhat lonely times uh but I I had the great fortune early in my career uh this was in the 1970s uh of being around a number of people whose demeanor and whose presence was um, very infectious and um, uh, attractive to me. One of them was Ram Dass, uh, who was around Cambridge at the time that I was there. And uh, I learned that uh, one of the things that uh, these people had in common was a practice of meditation. And so after my second year in graduate school, uh, this was very early on in 1974, I went off to India for the first time to uh, uh, have a taste of um, more intensive meditation practice for the first time. And I came back with a strong conviction and aspiration that the conviction was that this work uh, and meditation particularly was something really important for Western psychology and neuroscience to um, consider because it had great potential and um, my aspiration was to do research in this area. And when I got back, I did a little bit of research in, in those very early days, but it was made very clear to me by my professors at the time that if I wanted a successful career in science, um, this was not a good way for me to be, for me <laughs> to be in it. Uh, so uh, 
that led me uh, to a, uh, a kind of latency phase where I was a closet meditator for many years uh, and uh, really didn't talk much about my meditation practice, and to, certainly to my professional colleagues, and pursued my research on the brain and emotions. Um, and then all of that changed in 1992 when I first met His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who um, encouraged me to be more vocal about my interest in this area and uh, also encouraged me to uh, undertake serious neuroscientific research um, in this area. And um, that was a very pivotal meeting for me that, that really changed my life and changed my career. And um, I've had the great uh, fortune and honor of being able to see His Holiness now many, many times, and I see him several times a year now. Um, and he has been uh, very intimately involved in this work, uh, uh, and um, it really has flourished since then. We, we ramped up toward the end of uh, um, that, uh, um, uh, basically around 2000 we started, um, and uh, we uh, have been just growing this area in our own lab, and I've been doing what I can to grow it um, nationally and internationally as well, and uh, there really is a vibrant area now, and it's an area that we call contemplative neuroscience, uh, which has just flourished. It's research on the neuroscience of contemplative practices, and um, uh, it's just wonderful to see how, uh, how it's caught on. Well, and it's such a great um, blessing to our world because as His Holiness teaches, you know, one of the things we uh, most need in our world, of course, is more compassion and kindness. And to be able to make the link between um, meditation practice and the development of um, these positive qualities um, is... You know, it's, it's revolutionary for our times, and, and I really loved reading the stories about your, you know, your initial attempts to, to measure the, the brain activity of the monks, you know, in, in caves in India, and, you know, how, how it came, uh, your initial experiment that you presented to him. And I, I would like to just share a paragraph uh, from your book for our listeners this sure. morning uh, about that uh, initial presentation to His Holiness. And, and you write, the Dalai Lama saw more clearly clearly than we could that the field of contemplative neuroscience had just been born. Although he understood that it would take years until we had enough data to draw conclusions about how meditation not only produces distinct patterns of brain activity in real time, but also leaves enduring changes in that activity so that the brain of a meditator is different from that of a non-meditator even when she is not meditating. He thought the research had the power potential to transform humanity. Mental training might have the power to cultivate positive qualities of mind, as Buddhists have long taught, as well as experienced, and to relieve great suffering, increasing the world's story of compassion, a store of compassion and loving kindness. That's revolutionary. Well, we, we think so, and uh, we're doing our part to help uh, encourage and cultivate it. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, and I think, you know, what happens is, you know, we, because, especially in the West, you know, where our, our culture is so, um, 
you know, interested in, you know, what we can see and what we can prove. And we've, we've always had this interest in science. And, you know, in our tradition, when, when Paramahansa Yogananda came to America in 1920, um, you know, he had a, a book called The Science of Religion. <laughs> and, you know, and, and he was, he was even then talking to people about, um, you know, how uh, the brain could be changed uh, through meditation practice. And, and this was of great interest to people uh, in America. And so I think the work that you're doing um, now, being able to have scientific documentation, is very encouraging um, for people to meditate. You know, I was, I was greatly encouraged, you know, you know, a decade ago in my, my mother's um, uh, a medical doctor, her GP uh, recommended that she learn to meditate uh, to help with her blood pressure. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's wonderful, um, things happening, uh, with this. And, and of course you mentioned, uh, in our last segment about, uh, neuroplasticity, um, which now is becoming a little more common term for us, but, um, could you just talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to be the basis of, um, the hope for, for change, Yes, it is a key, uh, a key concept, and what neuroplasticity refers to is the idea that the brain can change in response to experience and in response to training, and uh, in many ways we can think of it as the organ that really is built to respond to change in this way, uh, and uh, uh, there, there are many different mechanisms of neuroplasticity, but we... Um, now have just uh, uh, unequivocal evidence to show that uh, if you stimulate the mind in particular ways and have a person undergo certain kinds of training, it can induce both functional and structural changes in the brain. Uh, and our brains are constantly being shaped. Our, they're constantly changing. Uh, and the invitation here is for us to be more intentional and to take more responsibility for the change so that it can change in a more positive way. Yeah, and, and that it can. You know, I think this, you know, what, what science has shown us, you know, fairly recently is that, that, that we're not doomed, you know, to the end of, of brain growth in our 20s, right? Um, right we're that, constantly generating new brain cells every day. Yeah, it's it's a very hopeful very hopeful picture, and um, you you conclude uh, the introduction in in your uh, book by by writing that um, becoming more familiar with your emotional style is the first and most important step in transforming it, and your hope that uh, you said if this book does nothing more than increase your awareness of your own emotional style and that of others around you, I would consider it a success. Um, so I want to thank you for making that um, possible for people through your work and through your book. And thank you for being on the Yoga Hour this morning. Remember, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Davidson's work, uh, the book, you can visit richardjdavidson.com. Uh, you- 
You're invited to join me next week on the Yoga Hour for Breath, the Key to Consciousness, Vitality, and Liberation. I'll be joined by Richard Rose and longtime research, writing, and teaching uh, focus on pranayama. For more information about Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, visit csecenter.org. Thank you again, Dr. Davidson, for being with me this morning. It's been a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your kindness and your own good work. Thank you. We look forward to being with the listeners uh, next week. Until then, remember to let your inner light shine into the world and to share your peace and your joy with all that you meet. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization www.csecenter.org Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org Good parenting doesn't happen by default. It's intentional. It's a decision about who you'll be and what you'll do in your family life. Join your hosts, Reverends Jennifer and Ogan Holder, each week for Unity Family Matters as they guide you on a spiritual journey, creating conscious family life. Experience the light side of parenting, realizing your divine identity while raising your children to know they are the light of God. Gain insights based on Unity principles. Talk with today's prominent experts in spiritual parenting and address your questions and comments from spiritual perspectives. Unity Family Matters. Every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Inspiration only takes a moment. Your friends at Unity invite you to reflect on these words from Rev. Jim Rosemurgy. Pause and take a deep breath. When you are ready... Affirm silently to yourself, Sweet, sweet spirit, I desire a closer walk with you. Show me the way. I am listening. Take time now in the silence to get in touch with the spiritual guidance within you. Have faith that your next step, your unfolding, your spiritual growth is coming to you in divine order through your spiritual instinct or your spiritual knowingness. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes? 
Join Reverend Galen McDowell live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms, a discussion on how God within you, as you, is the power to transform your life. If you really believe that consciousness determines your experiences and that you are an individualized expression of God, join us as we help awaken and transform the consciousness of humanity. We will discuss, through lecture, live interviews and call-in questions, spiritual healing, prayer, prosperity, forgiveness, new thought views about eternal life, and much more. The world is waiting for your truth transformation, only on Unity Online Radio. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 